0: Trade Bites, the podcast about trade policy. Hello and welcome once again to Trade Bites, the podcast series by the UK Trade Policy Observatory at the University of Sussex and hosted by me, Chris Horseman, Deputy Editor of the Trade Policy News Service, BorderLex. In this series of podcasts, we're metaphorically putting on our wellies and panning for gold nuggets of insight in the sleepy old river that is UK trade policy. And today we're in retrospective mood as we consider the impact thus far of the UK's single most important post-Brexit trade instrument, the Trade and Cooperation Agreement with the EU. Known to its intimates as the TCA, this agreement has established a framework for the UK's relationship with the EU in a wide range of areas. Not just trading goods, but also rules on services, government procurement, cross-border transport, fisheries, and a whole lot of others. But trading goods is the main focus of today's podcast. We now have full-year data for EU-UK trade in 2021, so we can start to assess the impact of the agreement, albeit with the caveat that both last year and the year before, our old friend COVID-19 ensured that it was anything but business as usual. Nevertheless, clear trends are starting to emerge, and questions are starting to be asked as to exactly what's happening and why. Why have the 70-mile queues outside the port of Dover, which the government postulated in 2020 as a reasonable worst-case scenario, failed to materialise? Why has the UK failed so far to impose a full range of checks on goods coming into the UK, and what might happen once they start to do so? And how have businesses, by and large, coped with the extra bureaucracy which being outside of the EU single market has entailed? Well, to discuss all of these issues and more, I am joined by four guests who, between them, have a wealth of experience and expertise in this area. I'm joined by Professor Michael Gasiorek, Director of the UK Trade Policy Observatory. It's a pleasure to welcome Emily Rees, founder of Trade Strategies and senior fellow at the European Centre for International Political Economy in Brussels. Welcome also to Peter Foster, public policy editor of the Financial Times and author of the FT's Britain After Brexit newsletter. And I'm delighted to welcome William Bain, head of trade policy at the British Chambers of Commerce. Welcome to all of you and thanks for joining us. Emily, let's go back in time just to start with. The UK's primary objective in negotiating the TCA was to avoid the imposition of tariffs on goods, and that's what we got. So at first glance, this might seem like basically a continuation of the pre-Brexit status quo, but there's a bit more to it than that, isn't there?
1: Absolutely, Chris. I mean, ultimately, when we negotiate free trade agreements, the idea is, of course, to eliminate tariffs, but more importantly, to get rid of tariff irritants and tackle non-tariff barriers. That's all the nitty gritty administration and bureaucracy that goes along the import and export process. And in the case of this particular agreement, what we've seen is that the skinny elements on the regulatory side have ended up in a number of hindrances to trade. So in the case of food and drink, for instance, there's a significant difference from trading as a member of the single market to practically falling to WTO terms when it comes to the regulatory aspect. That means more conditions, more paperwork, more checks on imports, more costs for business. And especially for small and medium enterprises that you know simply can't take that extra hike. And in some situations, and I take the case of Scottish seed potatoes, we've simply seen that this has resulted in an, a ban on exports, simply not allowing the trade of the product it's worth pointing out that
2: tariff-free trade in goods is only there if firms can prove that the goods originate in the UK if you're exporting to EU or in the EU if you're exporting to the UK. And that burden of proof for originating status is non-trivial. And it's quite clear that a lot of firms haven't been able to meet that burden and that quite a lot of trade is still taking place and paying tariffs.
0: And how has trading goods between the UK and EU evolved over the past 15 months or so? What do the trade statistics tell us?
2: We saw a massive collapse of exports of goods in the first month of over 40%. Now, if you think about that, roughly half of our exports went to the EU prior to Brexit, and that collapsed by 40% in that first month of January 2021. That's a huge collapse. Since then, exports have in aggregate Recovered, So we've seen a fairly persistent recovery in exports, but not in all sectors. So we see some sectors where exports are really consistently down, vegetable products, animal and vegetable stuff, uh, foodstuffs, leather, textiles and clothing where exports look like they're down by about 60%. But the fact that in aggregate trade has recovered means that in some of the more important sectors, such as machinery and electrical goods, which account for nearly 20% of UK exports, we've seen a recovery of trade and an increase in trade. If you look at imports... Then we also saw a massive decline in January, just over a year ago, and imports haven't recovered. Imports are persistently down by over 30% across the year, and this is true across most sectors, with the hardest hit being chemicals, where imports from the EU appear to be down by about over 40%.
0: Peter, you've got your finger on the pulse of what's happening at the business level. Why do you think it is that imports from the EU have fallen by significantly more than have UK exports to the EU? I mean, we were told before the Brexit referendum that they need us more than we need them in terms of the the reliance on trade. That has clearly proven not to be the case.
3: One of the problems is that a lot of goods that were coming into the UK via the EU, so they're arriving from Asia and being hubbed through Rotterdam, through the major ports, you can't do that anymore because you're effectively entering that good into the EU market. And then if you ship it on to the UK, you're then attracting tariffs and border checks there. So that, I think one of the things, talking to consultants that are working for a lot of the big businesses, is that we've started to see a splitting of supply chains because it's no longer practical to hub out of the UK. So more stuff is coming straight into the UK or straight into the EU to save its respective markets. It's also true to say you know, that the data is really muddied by COVID. It's also really muddied by the different ways in which the, the Office for National Statistics are now collecting data. The one point I would make macro about the recovery of trade is, of course, you don't live the counterfactual. And John Springfield at the Centre for European Reform, the think tank, I think he's done some really interesting work creating a, a doppelganger model, which looks at countries that haven't inflicted the frictions that we have in Brexit and then compares them to the way the UK has performed in exports relative to those countries of, as we rebound out of the pandemic. And he finds with his model that we're still about 15% off where we would otherwise have been as a result of these non tariff barriers.
0: William, we've talked about the fact that some sectors have been hit harder than others when it comes to UK exports, food and drink uh, textiles being among them. What are some of the specific factors that are affecting trade in these sectors? I mean, we, we've touched on them briefly already, but yeah, you know, what do you see as, as the main barriers to trade specifically in, in these kinds of areas?
4: Exports <clears throat> from day one, from the 1st of January last year, needed to have export health certificates signed by a vet in order to move from Great Britain to the European Union, and that there were full checks at Calais and other EU border control posts from day one. What we've seen was companies not getting into those enormous miles of queues because they were waiting to see how it was going to work. But what our research has shown from the Chambers Network is that as companies dipped their toe back in the exporting waters as the year went on, they were finding more and more difficulty with things like export health certificates, with the extra requirements now for VAT, the requirement to have a fiscal representative in the EU to sell certain goods, as well as those issues that Peter talked about, only being able to sell into the single market those goods which have EU or UK inputs. And things like the sufficient processing rule, I think, took a lot of adjustment for businesses in 2021. So all of these factors together add to a situation where 60% of our members surveyed experienced problems moving goods from GBN to the EU in the last year, and 71% of members surveyed feel that the TCA is doing nothing to contribute to growth in their businesses at all.
0: And Emily, we've talked about the impact of UK exporters of food and drink and the export health certificates that they've had to supply. EU businesses selling to the UK have until now not had to face the same barriers, but these barriers are progressively being introduced. So is it the case that we are still to see the full impact of the trade disruption in that sector in particular?
1: EU companies have had more time to adapt to the change as the calendar was set out over a longer period. So, as of July of 2022, uh, we're going to be entering what's called stage three of Great Britain's border operating model. And in practice, what that means is there are going to be additional requirements on drug precursor chemicals, fluorinated greenhouse gases, rough diamonds, veterinary medicines, bottled water for all the animal products, fishery products, the live valve mollusks, and uh, the high risk food and feed plants, plant products. So basically the full implementation of SPS requirements, that's going to take place throughout the rest of this year in different stages. So July animal products and derived meat products now will all be covered by these checks. And then when we reach September, it will be dairy and then with composite products and fish starting in November. So again, it's a phase in. The idea is to avoid import disruption into the UK market, which is more food dependent. What's going to happen is that all those products are now going to need to be pre-notified to British authorities. The loads will have to have their health certificates. They're going to be submitted to new documentation checks. And at the border control post, containers will now be able to be inspected physically. Not all border control posts of Great Britain are equipped to inspect all goods, Knowing where the EU is going to have to export a particular product to which BCP under which trade route is going to be the challenge for this year. All of these procedures add on costs for British importers.
0: Peter, of course, we can't talk about the B word without talking about the C word as well, Brexit and COVID. Now, we've already mentioned that, you know, the two things are mixed up. Is there any way to which we can sort of separate the two out? How do we know to what extent these trade slowdowns might be due to the global pandemic rather than to Brexit? Is there any way of disaggregating or disentangling the two factors?
3: You can do that with some clever modelling, which is the sort of thing that John Springford does at the Centre for European Reform by looking at other countries that have had all the same drags that COVID created, the disruption to international supply chains, and then working out where the additional drag is for the UK and then exploring the gap between the two. You can reach some kind of indication, I think some kind of judgement as to where you've got additional Brexit drag over COVID drag. Peter's absolutely right. You can try and control for these things. And essentially what you're trying
2: to do is to compare UK trade flows to the EU with something else where you're trying to control for these factors. So if you imagine that, for example, COVID has impacted on UK exports, then if exports to the EU by the UK have behaved differently to exports to non-EU countries, then that's one way of thinking about those differences. Another way of thinking about it is to create these doppelganger countries, think about alternative countries who may have also been affected by COVID and trade with the EU and compare their trade with the EU with UK's trade with the EU. John Springford's work on this is excellent and looks at overall trade. We've done very similar approach, with sort of doppelganger style approach, looking at this difference between UK to the EU to UK non-EU and find similar results, a negative impact on exports and negative impact on imports.
0: So how's this all playing out at a business level? William, the assumption before Brexit was that it would be the smaller companies that would be proportionally harder hit by the introduction of the new trade bureaucracy, harder than larger businesses. Is that borne out by what you're seeing? Is that borne out by by the data that's available thus far?
4: The bigger corporates had the ability to prepare for some adjustments in advance, and even for some issues, some of the unexpected implications around rules of origin, to get their heads around that quite quickly and make adjustments. For SMEs, however, you know, the priority was recovering from the pandemic. And I think really only as we got into the spring did companies begin to realise that you know, free trade does not equal frictionless trade and that there is an enormous difference between an FTA of the sort which has been negotiated and being in the customs union and the single market previously. So companies have experienced more difficulty as the year went on, because as they tried to trade more, they found that the regulatory requirements uh, were becoming more onerous. And of course, we also saw quite a big change in EU VAT. In the middle of the year as well, which added to the requirements for third country sellers into the single market.
3: As a journalist, it's actually very difficult to get a really proper handle on how this is impacting because the SMEs will often talk to you and the big boys won't. You know, they have much more brand reputation management. So one of the things that we're trying to work out at the Financial Times, I'm trying to work out, is whether we're overweight in SMEs. You know, you stumble over SMEs every five minutes complaining about all the bureaucracy that William mentions, and you can absolutely feel their pain. They don't have the cash flow, the people, the bandwidth to deal with it. But when you look at the aggregate trade figures, it suggests that actually their pain is overweight in the conversation. They're already telling me a lot of the small companies that, you know, for for us, maybe it's just too much trouble And I think that long-term hit about where trading with Europe for these smaller companies just becomes more trouble than it's worth in the sense of, you know, they don't have the bandwidth for it and they'll just look internally. And at the same time, EU companies will over time just find it easier to trade with other EU companies in the single market that can provide equivalent goods or services because stuff doesn't get hung up over VAT, late rules of origin, check, whatever it might be.
0: Now, of course, the TCA is designed to be a a sort of living document, to use the jargon. It's supposed to evolve over time. There are various committees which have been set up under the framework of the TCA to discuss implementation. And in time, the intention is to try and ease some of these burdens to trade and try and make trade flow a little bit easier. Emily, from what you're seeing are these various committees and these various initiatives making any progress? Is there any prospect that we could see improvements in the way the barriers that businesses face might start to
1: be eased anytime soon? There's no indication today of any particular easing for British exports to the EU soon. So suffice to say that we will be in a negotiation that will now become a continuous one, but perhaps a slow one. And if you'll Allow me just to take an example from phytosanitary measures. I know we often talk about the veterinary agreement, but phyto is actually kind of important. So it's all the rules that we put into place to protect plant health. And we heard, for instance, recently, the European Commission is not ready to back down on, for instance, the seed potatoes, despite calls from the European private sector saying, you know, that they need a derogation to the import rules because they need to source from their historical partners which is Scotland and I mean we need to keep in mind this was actually quite a significant amount of trade these seed potatoes talking about 25 to 30,000 tons of seed potatoes and that have dropped to nil And for the Commission, they really do see this as a point in case, and I quote, it was the choice of the UK to have GB out of the SPS area and Northern Ireland within the SPS area. And so in practice, that means that the rules applying to not having soil enter from third countries applies to Great Britain. This is such a waste when it's a lose-lose situation. There will be a resolution at some stage to issues such as this, but it will take a long time. And there needs to be a lot more political incentive for both sides to move in these technical committees to actually have any impactful results.
3: They're stuck by... The Northern Ireland Protocol, not just on goods and developing the TCA. And if the TCA is a living being, it's kind of a zombie at the moment. And it's going to stay that way until you start to get resolution on Northern Ireland. So Horizon Europe 2020 is stuck. Trady folks say, well, it's all in our mutual interest. It's just not the way I think the Commission sees it. You know, the history of Brexit is littered with joint letters between industry associations on both sides of the channel. And the Commission generally ignores them in the wider goal of protecting EU strategic interest, And to be fair to the Commission, going right back to David Cameron's negotiation over free movement with Angela Merkel, they've always held the line. The size and proximity to the UK means there's no free riding on the single market and there's no freebies. And I honestly don't think, despite efforts by the British government to try and get bilateral deals, to try and nibble around the edges, I don't see that changing in the near term, really until, at least until Boris Johnson's government is gone and the political winds have changed somewhat.
0: William, it's sounding like neither the British government nor the European Commission are really doing what their constituents in business are asking them to do. It must be very frustrating that we haven't seen this outbreak of common sense that traders on either side of the channel would really like to see.
4: It's going to take time. I mean, we have to form the relationships. I mean, we've had, I think, probably the worst possible start with all of the issues around the protocol inflammatory language, you know, very little trust between either side. It's been a very rocky start. Now, in the wake of what's happening around Ukraine, perhaps some of the mood music may be becoming a little bit better. And that may in time build, you know, for circumstances where there can be a deal in protocol compliance then other things can flow from that as well. So there are issues where we know that the EU is holding back because they want to make sure the UK does a lot more around the protocol. Um, There are issues where the UK is holding back. So, yes, there is frustration. I I think businesses could be smart and realistic about the way that we try and do this. It will be interesting when we have things like the Civil Society Forum established that will allow... British and EU stakeholders to get together and to be able to discuss how the trade relationships working with the UK government and the European Commission. The Partnership Parliamentary Assembly, I think, will give another opportunity. But I think we've got to be realistic. There are certain things, and we did this in our report, which are possible short-term gains, whether it's putting British companies in the same footing as Norwegian companies when it comes to import VAT on goods coming into the union, whether it's an SPS agreement. But there are broader structural issues that, frankly, will have to wait until 2026 and to see if the political climate is different at that point, perhaps because both sides see the need to cooperate and to cooperate on trade much more than was the case in 2021.
1: I think one of the concerns here is that if we're looking at 2026, as William just mentioned, is that with every year that passes, you will see a stronger decoupling of the UK and the EU economies. Companies will seek suppliers elsewhere, so the UK might look further afield. EU companies will start looking for suppliers within the single market. And there's also another issue, which is that of regulatory divergence that increases over time. So as you have more divergence in regulations, as you have more decoupling of the economies, you will then seek to converge on a number of, of issues so it's going to be tricky and the longer it takes the trickier
0: now of course if you speak to the uk government their narrative is that worrying and agitating about trade with the eu is so last year or possibly the year before because britain's doing amazing trade deals with the rest of the world and you know that's where the future growth lies Michael, I wonder whether you're seeing any evidence that this is starting to happen, that there will or could be a compensation in terms of the restrictions on trade with the EU in the form of easier and better trade and more voluminous trade with the rest of the world?
2: Frankly speaking, the answer to that is no the UK has managed to sign two new free trade agreements, one with New Zealand, one with Australia. Each of those are projected to lead to an increase in UK GDP of significantly less than 1%. So in other words, you know we are signing new trade deals. We're signing new trade deals at the moment with countries which are not very important trading partners. And our most important trading partner, the EU, we've chosen to raise barriers against. And there's no evidence currently that signing these new trade deals with countries out there is a going to be much easier in particular with some of the bigger countries be this india or the united states indeed i think those deals are extremely unlikely to happen for many years to come and the deals we are managing to sign are with countries that are small trading partners and are not having a big impact the one Possible slight exception to this story is potentially accession to the CPTPP. Now that is a big trade block and it might be that that will lead to a more significant increase in trade than, for example, Australia or New Zealand. But we have free trade deals with most of those countries anyway. And I think it's certainly not the case that it will compensate for the loss of access to the EU market.
0: So life outside of the single market is now a fact of life, and it will be for some time to come. So as we move towards the end of today's podcast, there's a question which I'd like to ask each of you in turn, really. Do you think that EU-UK trade is essentially heading for a new normal over the next five years or so, certainly until the TCA comes up for review in 2026? What do you think that new normal will look like in essence? Peter, can I come to you first?
3: We've been a top 10 export and import partner of Germany since 1950. We're now outside the top 10. You're already seeing the reorientation of trade. Over the next 5-10 years, we're going to see the extent to which us being at a marginal disadvantage impacts the willingness of EU companies to trade with UK companies. Remember, our manufacturing is all part of intermediate supply chains, where we feed into intermediate supply chains. And it's going to create a drag and it will of course create a drag on investment in the UK it's very difficult to quantify that at this moment partly because of covid but also partly because it comes down to human nature you know there was a stock of relationships of contracts of of arrangements that were already in place prior to brexit what we're going to see over the next 5 years is the extent to which those frictions that we've put in between us and our largest market start to shift and erode those relationships.
0: William, do you subscribe to the slow puncture model that trade with the EU rather than sort of blowing up will will sort of very slowly deflate over time?
4: Most of the puncture effect has probably happened. The question is we're kind of at the side of the road without anyone with a pump to sort of give us a new tyre to get the car going again. I think that's the problem. I mean. Back in can sort of invoke a little bit of Robert Burns and, you know, have the gift of looking as others see us, if you look at the German trade figures over the last few months, they reveal a startling picture. Because compared with 2020, trade in 2021 in Germany shot through the roof in terms of both imports and exports within the single market and with other countries in the rest of the world. Where was it flat as a pancake with? With the UK? If we go back to the German car exporters, well, there's been a fall of around a quarter in the amount of German cars which are being exported to the UK compared with where we were in 2018. So we are in a new normal. The imposition of rules of origin, the imposition of significant customs and other paperwork, the ending of just-in-time supply chains in many fields has Already had the effect of reducing EU UK trade. The question is what's the upper bound in terms of how much can be repaired through side agreements in the run up to 2026 or through 2026? How ambitious might both sides be in perhaps trying to take a second cut at issues like services market access, labour mobility in 2026? The great unknown, I think, that Still gives a little bit of optimism. Is the new paradigm after the 24th of February does sort of mean the West has to cooperate much more closely together around things like supply chains as well? So that could have the effect of bringing a new pragmatism and a new closeness ahead of 2026. Or alternatively, if we get more and more onshoring of supply chains, the UK in particular might find itself being cut out. You know, we've seen the developments with the EU and semiconductors. So the UK might be having to look around the world for other areas and other sources of things like semiconductors and vital raw materials that it previously had been getting from Russia and Ukraine. Emily, from the EU side, if they are
0: learning to do without UK trade to a growing extent. Does that remove some of the incentive from Brussels' perspective to actually work towards improving the terms of trade with the UK over the next few years?
1: Improving relations with the UK will always be an underlying objective. The question is how far you push for it. I think from a Brussels perspective, though, it's very much a plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. We're going to end up in endless mini negotiations. That's going to become the new normal. The UK is out. It will have to now adapt to engaging Brussels as a third country that doesn't have a seat at the table And life in the Brussels bubble of regulatory administration and bureaucracy will continue as both economies slowly decouple.
0: And Michael, last word for you.
2: We are in a new normal to some extent, but it's worth distinguishing the sort of the new normal that's the politics and the new normal that's the economics. So on the economic side of things, the way we are now trading And the costs of trade with the EU have risen. That will cause adjustments, as Peter and William and Emily have said. And I think that the large firms, by and large, will be able to adjust. I think the really big impact, and we don't yet have the detailed data on this, but I anticipate the really big impact will be on small firms. But as William rightly pointed out, we also need to think about other global changes that are taking place, other shocks to the world system, in particular – following the 24th of February and the attack of Russia on Ukraine, that is only going to emphasise the increasing concern by policymakers to build much greater resilience into their supply chains and to diversify their supply chains. In that context, being outside of the EU single market, not being a member of the EU, is going to just magnify the challenges for UK firms and businesses, and in particular, the smaller ones. The politics of the new normal is we've got a government which is very, very much focused on showing that we can do well outside of the EU. Therefore, there is little interest in improving relations with the EU. Until that changes, that political new normal won't change.
0: It's been a fascinating discussion. We've covered a lot of ground, and I'm very grateful to all of you for your thoughts and your insights. And we'll have to have you back in two or three years to discuss what's happened in the interim. But in the meantime, there we have to wrap things up. Many thanks indeed to my guests, to Professor Michael Gasurek, to Emily Reese, to Peter Foster, and to William Bain. And thanks very much to all of you for tuning in and listening. Let's do it all again soon with the next episode of Trade Bites. Please subscribe to our Trade Bites podcast series brought to you by the UK Trade Policy Observatory with funding from the Economic and Social Research Council.